Okay, so this is going to surprise you all, but I was reading a little John Ortberg last week. His uh, writing on uh, God being judgmental, it's about six years old, but I love what he said here. He says that, uh, I don't know that there's a more important question that any human being can ask than this one. What is God like? If somebody created all this, I mean, if it's not here because of an accident, then who is our maker, and what's his nature, and what about his character? Now, I, I, like always, I think Ortberg hit the nail on the head. I think that's a very important question, especially based on what we talked about last week, temptation. I had somebody come up to me last week after church and say, hey, Cain, are we saved by grace or not? I said, well, yeah, of course we are. Well, if we're saved by grace, then what all this talk about the wide road and the narrow road, and why all this talk about many are called and few are chosen, and why all this talk about on the last day some people aren't going to make it, a lot of people aren't going to… If, if we're saved by grace, then why are we even talking about temptation and stuff? And you know what? That's a very good question, and I hope we find some answers to it this morning because we're going to talk about the nature of God. You remember Irma Bombeck? She tells a story one time. She was at church. And there was a little kid sitting next to her, and on the other side was his mom. And she said this kid was disrupting everything. Now, he wasn't, he wasn't crying, and he wasn't making a lot of noise. What he was doing was this. He was turning around and trying to get people's attention, and would grin at him. And, of course, they'd grin back, which means they weren't paying attention to the sermon. And his mom didn't like that, and she told him to stop that. We're in church. And then Irma said she grabbed him by the arm, spun him around, and slapped him on the face, and he started tearing up. And she said, you know what, I would have loved to have grabbed that little kid and set him on my lap and told him about my God, my smiling God, my happy God, my God who must have a sense of humor to create all of us. I like that story. And that brings us back to the question, what kind of God is He? Is He harsh? Is your God severe? Does He grab you by the arm and slap you? Is He hiding behind a tree waiting for you to break a temptation so He can bust you? I think that's a good question. Uh, Emma Goldman says that Christianity is the leveler of the human race, the breaker of man's will to dare and to do. It is the iron net and a straitjacket which does not let Him expand or grow. People believe that. A lot of people think that Christianity binds us up. We have to believe certain things. We've got to act a certain way. H.L. Minchkin says this, Puritanism is the haunting fear that somebody someplace may be happy. He says to be a Christian means to be a rule-following, box-checking, robotic, unthinking, judgmental, inflexible, severe, self-righteous, pleasure-avoiding sheep. It's something that would happen if a repressed librarian married a neurotic accountant. Yeah, people believe that, lots of people. I want to do two quick things with this this morning, then we're going to take communion and sing some praise songs to this great God. Here's the first thing. I want to talk about the nature of God, who He is and how He looks at us, because if we do that, I think it will help us understand why we have to have sermons about temptations. It's not so that we can become robots. It's not so we can earn salvation, for heaven's sakes. It's not even to make God happy. We try to live by God's standard of living, His absolute truth, and follow the Word of the Lord for our witness's sake, and more importantly, for this fulfillment of life that Jesus promised in John 10.10. 10. The rabbis talked a lot about and the love of God from the Scriptures. And by the way, when you read about God in the Scripture, you're never going to see Him with a straitjacket, ever. You're never going to read about God being judgmental, not in the Scripture. And the rabbis talked about uh, His first command to us, which is kind of, I think, awesome. But if you've been to church a long time, you might even find it a little offensive. 
because his first commandment is found in Genesis 1.28. God blessed the man and the woman, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then they would say that that's his first instruction to mankind, the first thing God commanded us to do. Uh, and so it's significant, and we, it's very important. And I'd like to point out that the commandment did not say, don't sin. The first commandment did not say, read the Bible. The first commandment did not say, believe everything I tell you to believe. The first commandment said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, i got a question for you. What human activity is involved in being fruitful and multiplying? Yeah. Yeah. It's a real neat thing. You got this woman Christian, and she falls in love with this man Christian, and they get married in the eyes of God and several people, and they start following Christ's pattern for them in their life, and pretty soon you have little Christian babies. And so, yeah, you know, let's just say it. It's sex, okay? Trust me, I'm a professional on this. I know what I'm talking about. In fact, I almost wrote down the number one commandment God gave was to have sex, but I thought that might be over the top. And I also don't think it captures what God's talking about here because He didn't just say be fruitful and multiply. He said be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth for crying out loud. Two people. Now, the earth approximately is 24,000 miles in circumference. And right now we have uh, north of 7 billion people on it. How much fruitful and multiplying did it take to start with two to get to seven billion? A bunch. It took a bunch. And to make sure that this commandment got fulfilled, God gave the activity of being fruitful and multiplying uh, to be a very desirable thing. It's a lot of fun. And we know that from Genesis 2.23, when Adam first came in contact with a woman, he broke out in, in Hebrew poetry. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What really happened was he saw her standing there, no fig leaves yet, and he went, whoa, man. And that's how we got the word woman, okay? God's first command us. Are you kidding me? It doesn't sound like a tough God to me, does it you? Everybody's still with me. Nobody's left yet, right? That's the first command. The rabbis point out the first instruction God gave us was to be fruitful and multiply. I think it's awesome. But look at the second commandment, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord commanded the man saying, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. I'm calling the second commandment bon appetit. Now, we always concentrate on the second part of that. In fact, that's what we talked about last Sunday. But we don't want to miss the initial command here. The initial command was, eat. I command you to eat. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's a double command. It means eat, eat. It's like an Italian mother would say to her children, you're too thin, eat. You're not eating enough. It's like what Mrs. Claus would say to Santa Claus, eat, Papa, eat. God's saying, eat. I want you to eat. Have a good time with eating. And the stuff he gave us to eat is astounding. The Bible says in Genesis that there was lots of trees with lots of fruit. It's not like God could have just created one tree and said, if you're hungry, eat it. If you don't like it, supper's come and gone. But no, he gave us a variety pack. It's like a feast. Stuff your face. I command you to. It's a neat thing. That's the second commandment. Most of you uh, don't know this about me. Some of you do. I have to go on a diet twice a year. Uh, I've been wearing a size 30 pants since high school, and I'm just stubborn and cheap enough that when I can't get them anymore... Uh, instead of buying a 31, I go on a diet. I've already had one this year. It's 1,200 calories a day. It takes me about six to eight weeks to get it done. I lost 17 pounds in January and February and March, and you're seeing it's about time to do it again. Probably the end of summer, I'll have to do it again. And I'm not real crazy about a diet, but I love the cheat day. You guys remember Francois Williams? He taught me this. See, when you starve yourself like that, 1,200 calories a day, your body starts storing fat. 
uh-oh, he's not eating enough. But if on every tenth day you splurge, it tricks the body, keeps things going. So I love a cheat day. Man, on a cheat day, I get up in the morning, drink two glasses of milk because I miss milk on my diet. And I might have a Pop-Tart and a cinnamon roll and some coffee. And then for lunch, I'm looking at hamburger, french fries, and a chocolate malt. And then I'll work out in the afternoon to get a little more capacity because I'm going to Mother Bear's for dinner. And I'm having a pizza and a Pepsi with cherry grenadine in it and extra crackers in my salad, you know what I mean? And then at night, to kind of balance things out, I'll eat stuff from the old food groups. You know, the old food groups, Cheetos, Fritos, Tostitos, Oreos, that kind of thing. And then I top everything off with two dips of ice cream and hot fudge sundae. I live for cheat day, man. I love cheat day. And this second command to me is like God saying, I want you to have a cheap day. I- I'm telling you, eat, feed yourself, and have a good time doing it. Doesn't sound like tough stuff to me. Here's the third command. I want you to exercise dominion, take charge of everything. Verse 28, this is amazing. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, I command you to just take care of everything. I I want you to have great stuff, have fun, make things, study things, discover things, organize things, drive a golf ball, throw a curveball, kick a football and a soccer ball, do some architect, build some cities, paint some paintings, play some music, ride some elephants, train some dogs, catch some butterflies, make some machines that go real fast, create language, tell stories, write some romances, come up with an airplane that can take care of the skies. In other words, do great stuff. I command you to go have a great time fulfilling your life and have great time doing it. There's three commands already in. See, this is why we obey what God tells us to do. It's all for us. We're just three commandments in. And and, and here they are. Have sex and have fun doing it. Eat a lot of food and have fun doing it. And just enjoy yourself on this planet. Take charge of everything. Have fun doing it. Doesn't sound like a real tough God to me, does it you? One more and then we'll move on. He says, the Bible says, he blesses them and then says be fruitful and multiply. The blessing's a very big deal. The rabbis talked about when you bless somebody, you were projecting great good into their life. And that's got, got what God wants to do for us. And, and the blessing and the commands are connected in a big way, but not like we think they are. Not like the church has taught that it has been over the years. It, it's not like God says, I'm going to give you a lot of great stuff. I'm going to do a lot of neat things for you, but then I want you to do this for me. Not even close. Not even close. The connection is God blesses them, and then God commands them, and as they obey the command, they get more blessing, and they find out that every command that He's given is to give them more blessing. It's an amazing deal. He's an amazing God. It's crazy stuff. But the rabbis and the people of that day, the Israelites, they realized they couldn't keep that up because they're just like us. Want to go their own way want to follow the trends and keep up with society and make everybody happy and do what we want to do. We just talked about that last week. And so, to get back on track, you hear scriptures like Psalm 119 verse 20 that reads, my soul is consumed with longing at all times for your. How would you finish that? If you were to turn to the person next to you right now and say, my soul is consumed with longing at all times for your... Don't do it. It was a joke. Okay, don't do it. But how do you think they finished that? Here's how the psalmist finished this. My soul is consumed with longing all day long for your commandments, for your laws. Are you kidding me? In verse 31 of that same chapter, it's a long chapter, obviously. He says, my soul is consumed with longing and my mouth 
pants longing for your commandments. My soul's consumed with it. I pant for your commandments. Why? Because he's a robotic, legalistic, box-checking moron? No, because he has found out there's a God in heaven that loves him more than he could ever imagine. And if he just does what God tells him to do, it is an amazing life set before him. That's why we talk about temptation. It's for our own good. We follow God on this thing, no matter what society says, no matter what the trends are. Because again, we can't change the laws of God. Remember that. Remember the temptation last week was not about what they could have for lunch. The temptation was being able to decide from themselves what's right from wrong. We cannot do that. What's built into the Scripture is a rightness and longness, and we can't change God's laws anymore than we can change any of the laws. We can't change the law of gravity. We can violate it if we want to, probably at our own peril. We can't change it. Same thing with God's law. You can violate, but you can't change it. There's built into it a good and an evil, a right and a wrong. He did it. I didn't. Neither did you. Now, we can discover it, we can reflect on it, we can think about it, we can learn from it, we can obey it or not obey it, but we cannot change God's law. It can't happen. You can't change it to make your Facebook people happy. You can't change it to make the society happy. You cannot change God's law. It's for our own good. It's all to fulfill us. It's good stuff. Now, you have to study it because there's, we just looked at three, but there's a lot of commands in the Bible, as you can imagine. And some of them look pretty weird. If you ever read one of God's commands and thought, man, that's just weird. I'll give you a couple, you know, I've got to hurry, but uh, Deuteronomy 22, 11 and 12 begins with this. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. What? Why would he care? And some of you are thinking, well, I feel good about myself spiritually because I've never done that before. But listen to the second part of this, okay? Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woolen together. What? That's a command from God. That's just weird. Why would God give a rip what kind of clothes I wear? Obviously, I don't care what I wear. You know what I'm talking about? I found some pictures of my high school. When my mom passed away last year, we went through some pictures. And I found, I found a picture of me in a leisure suit with an afro. Wouldn't you love to see a picture of me in a leisure suit with an afro? It'd be a cold day in Bloomington before you see that. But you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but you've got to study, man, because if you don't, uh, those things certainly sound weird. But here, here's the example. There was a, a deal back then called uh, sympathetic magic. And the idea was if you took two plants and put them together, or two animals and married them together, or two fibers and put them together in the heavenlies, then the fertility gods would love you for that, and you'd get what you want. And God's command is, no, 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 you're not going to do that. That's superstition. That's horoscope. You don't try to manipulate things. I'm the only true God here. You're not going to do that. So you've got to study. Now, something for us maybe today, uh, for our uh, country that's struggling so much with sexual immorality, maybe one of God's commands would be today, uh, thou shalt not buy a February edition of Sports Illustrated. That'd be a good command. Why? You men are looking around like, I don't know what he's talking about. Liars. The February edition of uh, Sports Illustrated is a swimsuit edition. And if you're a guy that's trying to keep your eyes pure and your heart pure towards your wife and all those kind of things, that would be a real good command for you today. But could you imagine 2,000 years from now when there's probably not a Sports Illustrated, not even a magazine, you'd read that commandment from God and you'd think, oh my goodness, that's weird. It's for our own good. But you've got to study. That's my point. But I promise you, church family, I promise you, and I defy you to tell me that I'm lying to you, every command you find in the Bible, if you study it, you're going to find out without exception, it's for your own good. God set it up for you to flourish and grow. Always. 
Here's the second thing I want to talk about, and then we're going to come to communion. I want to talk about pruning. That's another reason we talk about uh, temptation in the church a lot. It has to do with John chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, when Jesus said, I am the true vine of Israel, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that doesn't produce fruit, and every, every branch that does produce fruit, He prunes it so to be even more fruitful. Here's the idea. When you and I become a Christian, and we're not kidding around about it, we actually become a Christian. We link up with Jesus. He's in us and we're in Him. We start producing fruit for the kingdom of God. And Jesus, one of His main jobs in our lives is to sanctify us and cause us to, to, to have more fruit. We talked about it last week, Philippians 1, 6. He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, when we get to a place in our life where something's come along that's keeping us from producing lots of fruit or any fruit at all, he prunes it. Ouch. Now, there's two primary ways to prune. The first, something comes along in a vine that's keeping the fruit from coming like it should or coming at all, and the gardener will come along with a great big pair of shears and just cut it off, man. Cut it right off. And in my life as a Christian, especially in my life as a minister for the last 35 years, he's cut some things out of my life that really painful. I mean, really painful. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You got something going in your life that's moving you away from God and, uh, and hurting your witness and keeping you from producing fruit. He'll cut it out. He will cut it out. Now, a good example of that is King David in the Old Testament. King David gave into the, he gave into the temptation of lusting, and then he gave into the temptation of adultery, and he got Bathsheba pregnant, and then he got into the temptation of deception, and then he gave into the temptation of murder. Adultery, deception, and murder from a guy after God's own heart, and he didn't repent. And so you know the story. Uh, a couple years later, Nathan comes to him, the prophet Nathan, and he says, hey, King David, i got to talk to you about this guy in the kingdom. And David said, shoot. And he said, well, we got this guy that lives over here. He's so rich. He's got so much cattle, you couldn't believe how much he's got. He's so rich. And then we got a guy that lives over here. He's got one lamb, and he loves that lamb so much. And this rich guy went over and stole this guy's lamb, and David was fuming. And he said, you find that guy and bring him in here. He deserves to die. And Nathan said, I'm talking about you. It's you. And because he didn't repent, man, they lost that baby. Their family got divided. The kingdom was a mess. Now, did David go to hell? That's not the point. The point is he gave in to the temptation of not following God's commands for his life, and it cost him big time, and it will us too. I told you before about that kid I saw throwing a big fit in the mall conniption fit in the pet shop because he wanted an animal and his mom said no. And I was telling the small group about it and they said, what did you do? And I said, I didn't do anything. It wasn't my kid. But if it had been my kid, I'm just reminding you, family, you're God's kid. And if you've got something going on in your life right now that's keeping you disconnected from God, keeps you from building up fruit, keeps you from being what you're supposed to do and living a full life, and you don't do something about it, He will, I guarantee you. That's why we talk about temptation in church. But there's one other kind of pruning, and, and I'm, I'm about done. And this is the one I, I beg God for all the time in my life, especially at this stage. Um, I love golf. You guys know that. I love to talk about golf. I love to play golf. I love to watch golf. And uh, there's so many good things about golf. Golf is a game of integrity, so uh, you've got to be careful about cheating. <laughs> Golf's also got a lot of neat stuff with it and discipline. Uh, but some of the stuff in golf, like you've got a free drop, Get the ball out of bounds, you get a penalty for that, but then you get a free drop. I mean, who don't want a free drop, you know what I mean? 
And then the mulligan, you guys have heard me talk about the mulligan. It's a do-over. Who doesn't want a do-over? When you play with my group, we have a mulligan on the front tee and one mulligan per nine. Greg Norman says if you make the rules up in the clubhouse, it's fair for everybody. So that's what we love mulligans. When you play with me, you get mulligans. But one of my favorite things about golf that is good for this discussion is the rule of lift, clean, and place. When, when you hit a golf ball and it gets mud on it, just even a little bit of mud, it makes it do goofy things. It's like a, it's, it's like a doctored baseball. And so sometimes you get a little mud on the ball, and even if you approach it and you hit the ball perfectly because of the mud, it'll shoot off right, it'll shoot off left, go straight, but do nuts, crazy things. So in 1960, the PGA came up with a rule that when you're playing in adverse conditions when the ball's getting muddy, you're allowed to walk over and gently lift the ball, clean it off, and place it back down on the ground. It changes the entire game. Now, how about us? We get a little dirt in our life. Some of you have some dirt on you right now. I know I do. It disconnects us from God. It hurts our witness. Even when we think we're doing the right thing, it causes us to do crazy things. And so this is the other way of pruning. Sometimes a vine grows too close to the ground and it's dusty on the ground, and the rain will come and beat, and the mud flips up on the leaves, and it gets all caked and nasty. And instead of cutting it, the gardener will come over and gently lift that vine up off the ground, get a bucket of water and a sponge, and clean it all off, and then gently place it back down. Lift, clean, and place. Some of you heard this story before, but that just means you're about to hear it again. I was seven years old. I went to Case's Market to get some bread. It was two blocks from home. Had a penny left. Matches were two for a penny, and I bought some. And when I came home, we had company, but it wasn't my company. So I went out behind the, the house underneath our apple tree and started playing with these matches. And we had a big footstool out there. It made a straw. It was my grandma's. And I got that thing lit up, and it was a blaze. Now, it was probably okay, but to me, it looked like the Chicago fire. And I was trying everything I could to get it out. I went and got my grandpa's wheelbarrow, which is pretty smart for a seven-year-old. I was going to snuff it out. But it wasn't like our little wheelbarrows today. This is a Grandpa Kane wheelbarrow, great big thing. And I got about halfway over with it, fell, chipped a tooth, busted my lip. And so I'd had enough. So I went busting in the house, and I said, the whole backyard's on fire, and I didn't do it. Well, everybody ran outside, you know, the company, and they all sprayed it and got it all put out. And it was not that big of a deal, but it was to me. But when we came in the house, I knew I was in trouble. Because, see, I had lied, and I played with matches. And my dad was sitting right there in the chair, and I was standing in front of him, already teared up because I knew it was coming. You know what my dad did? He lifted me up, and he wiped off my eyes, lifted, he cleaned, and he placed me in his lap. And they started talking to me about the dangers of playing with that. That's why I don't want you playing with matches, Jimmy. You could have hurt yourself. That would have been terrible. And, son, you can't lie to me. I don't want you to lie to me because then if something really happens, I won't believe you. You understand that, don't you? Yeah. Lifted, cleaned, and placed. I didn't play with matches again. So how about it, family? You got some dirt in your life right now? Wouldn't you like for the Lord to gently lift you up this morning, clean you off, place you back down in his lap. 
broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ is the place.